Ed Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Sedano and LZ back on Monday at 4 o'clock on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. From now on, I am not Robert Clapper. I want you to call me Smokey. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Dr. Smokey Clapper. That's the greatest. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Ain't but one way out, baby. I just can't go out that door. You know there ain't but one way out, woman. I just can't go out that door. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. That is Sonny Boy Williamson. Singing One Way Out. Well, he's doing it with a harmonica. And Dwayne Allman heard that and said, I'm going to make my slide guitar sound like that harmonica. Good job, Steve Paulette. All right, joining me now is not just the doctor. He's one of my doctors, the great Dr. Carrie Strom. Carrie, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Okay, Robbie. <laughs> Dr. Clapper, what, what do we call you here? You can call me Robbie. You've, you've earned the right. You saved my life. You can call me whatever you oh, want. Call me Tito. Call right. me Smokey. <laughs> Smokey Robbie Clapper. Nice to be here. How are you? Good. Before we get started, Carrie, tell us who you are. Where'd you grow up? What'd your dad do to, for a living? And when did Cupid shoot you in the chest and say, yep, of all the things I can do with a medical degree, I want to do the gut, gastroenterology. Take us through your story. All right. So I grew up in Chicago and uh, I was one of three children. My dad was a dentist. Oh, wow. But I knew when I was six that I was going to be a doctor. I built the invisible man. Do you remember that thing? You, that model, you paint the organs and the body's invisible. I, I just, I knew this when I was a kid. Wow. And then I went to, uh, went to college and uh, I knew I wanted to be a doc, but I also wanted to have a girlfriend. And I had a girlfriend my first year of college. And uh, broke my heart, but I got bad grades, and then she dumped me. It ripped out my spleen, tore up my liver, eviscerated my abdomen. But it was a silver lining because it decided, you know what, now i got to start studying. And after that first year of mediocre grades, I got great grades. I got into medical school. I did a residency at University of Illinois in internal medicine. I decided gastro was cool because I liked the procedures. Mm. I wasn't smart enough like you to be an orthopedic surgeon, <laughs> but I was second best. And I became the uh, GI doctor. Then I went out to UCLA, did my fellowship, mm-hmm. and I went into practice at Cedars, and I've been there for years. Years. I started my, in years. my practice. Well, I was an intern in 1983 at Cedars, and in 1989 I went into practice after my fellowship at Curl and Joe. So when did you start your practice at Cedars? So I started my practice at Cedars in 1985. So you're four years ahead of me. Wow. You're amazing. Good yeah, you. I mean, you know, everybody everybody knows there's a difference in maturity between me and you. <laughs> Listen, the reason I mean, I'm both, having you look on, at, look at, I want to yes. showcase who you are as one of the best doctors that I've ever met. But you're also my doctor. Oh, when, I, when I met you, after seeing all my buddies who were general surgeons because my belly hurt, and lie down on your table, and you poked me in one spot, and I hit the ceiling. You said, it's not your gallbladder. You tore your muscle, you dummy. Leave it alone. It'll heal. And you were right. Yeah, how did, how did you do that anyhow? How'd you tear your muscle in your belly, Mike? Probably God, surfing. The, the, the re, 
<laughs> Probably surfing, doing something know. crazy. You could have been doing something crazy, but yes, you didn't need your gold letter out. Yeah, no. And I, I I always thought, of, and when I knew I wanted to have you on as a guest, listen, it's been 10 and a half years I've been doing this show. I really want to showcase the people that I just think are world class, and you are one of them, and you can say, oh, shucks, but it's really the truth. Teach us a little bit about what goes into that wisdom, that sixth sense. Listen, Michelangelo's dead 500 years. I can't talk to him, but I can talk to you about what's not in the book and that, that, that knowledge, that sixth sense you get probably from the moment that patient walks in the exam room or you walk into the exam room to meet the patient, you already get a sense of what's the matter with them. Well, okay, I'm going to tell you. Hey, Mom, get on the radio. I want you to hear this. <laughs> Anyhow. The, well, right, like this- you being a doctor, you being a doctor, and all of us have been in practice for a while, you see people and you see things, just they present themselves a little bit differently. And, you know, not everything, look, and obviously not everything that is a... Uh, uh, when you're a hammer, everything's not a nail. So mm-hmm. you got to think a little bit. I mean, it's very easy. In this time of medicine now, when we're so stressed with the electronic medical record and just to go bam, bam, bam from one to one, sometimes we don't think as much as we should. We need to take a little bit more time. That, that's my concern about medicine now, Robbie, is just that it's so much, there's so much pressure on us to get things done, to type into the medical record and, and to dehumanize relationships I don't like to practice like that. I like to take time, look at a patient. I have somebody in the room scribing for me, so I like mm-hmm. to think. And, you know, just by talking to people, you can hear them. If you just listen, if you just listen, they will tell you what's wrong with them. So it's just that you have to take the time. There's a lot of great doctors out there. Our colleagues are very good, but i fearful of the electronic record and mm-hmm. our distraction that's taking us away from the thought process. But uh, look, at I'm not a new doctor. I'm not a old doctor, I'm a middle-aged doctor, but I have enough experience to know that you have to listen to the patient and actually touch the patient and try to make the diagnosis before you jump to conclusion. So I want the listeners to hear one of my stories, and then I really want to hear something from you, Dr. Carrie Strom. So I see a patient flew down from Montana um, for his knee surgery, and he's having surgery, let's say, on Friday. Now he's in my office Tuesday. He flew down for me to examine him, get him an internist, so that I can operate on him. And I have him lying down on the table, and I have his feet up, and I say, okay, fight me, and I try to push his foot down. He fights me on the right leg, and I'm going to do his left knee. And on the left side, I can actually pretty easily push his foot down, even against him resisting me. And I do it again on his right side. He's got full strength. The left side, the, one, the side I'm going to operate on, he fights with me. Long story short, I said, listen, you're weak on this side. Why is that? I don't know. Well, I'm having my surgery on Friday. I go, listen, you need to go to a neurologist, get a nerve conduction study. Make a long story short, I diagnose in this guy post-polio syndrome. He didn't even know that he had polio as a child. I ended up ultimately Mm -hmm. doing his surgery. But you'd be surprised. The simple things that we do, you know, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. You have to be enough wisdom but enough experience. So I imagine as a GI guy, the gut is from the mouth to the rectum, the anus. You're doing rectal exams because you're in that business. But how many times do you say to a guy, you know what, your prostate feels weird to me, and find the diagnosis of prostate cancer? Take us through what it's like in your experience, your world, where you found something unexpected. 
Well, you have, first of all, it, it's everything is so automated now and we're so distanced from patients. You have to examine and touch a patient. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it's not so much a doctor's problem. It's the system. We are, we are so distracted by that computer and inputting data. And if you're a slow typer like myself, I mean, honestly, if without my scribe, I would have to I couldn't see the number of people I see in the course of the day. I mm-hmm. want to focus on the patient, look at the patient. So the the thing that probably the most unexpected thing that I found uh, when I examined somebody was probably I, a patient was coming in for a um, routine abdominal examination, and it was a young patient, and I was expecting, okay, it's probably irritable bowel, because that's just a nervous gut that we see that a lot, half of our practice is that. And uh, I examined the patients, and I feel a mass hmm. in the abdomen, hmm. and it was a big mass. And then I put my stethoscope on it, and I can hear the sound of the mass. Hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, this cannot be right, and maybe it's just sort of... Uh, Maybe it's the stomach or, or maybe it's just something that's distended, bloated, full of air. And then I do a CAT scan and I see something that I was not expecting. It was a mass in the pancreas, a very vascular mass. It was not a malignancy. Hmm. Patient went to surgery, had it removed, and is around 10 years later. Wow. But I was not expecting any type of tumor like that. But I felt it and I heard it with the stethoscope. Hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, that was the only case I've seen this in 30 years, but Yes, unless you listen to the patient, that is, with your ears and with your hands and with your stethoscope, you, you may miss a diagnosis frequently. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the most common cause for a malpractice in this era is misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we, we really, and I told you, and I think you probably may know what I'm saying because you and I are almost the same vintage we're distracted from the patient. Medicine's becoming very depersonalized, and it's not the doctor. I think it's the system. Yeah, I agree with you. While we're on the tub- subject of irritable bowel syndrome, teach us what that is, and are there foods we can eat differently? Are there medicines? You, how do you treat someone who has a nervous gut? All right, well, that this is the most common thing we see in practice. So an IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, that is the um, the acronym, IBS, is probably half of the patients that we see in a GI practice. And irritable bowel can be anywhere from the lips to the anus. It can be indigestion. It can be nausea. It can be constipation. It could be diarrhea. So depending on what type of IBS a patient has, our algorithm will, will go down that branch and will treat accordingly. For instance, diarrhea is a very common cause of IBS. And you can remember since you were a kid, when you have an exam in school, mom, my stomach hurts. I can't go to school. Mm-hmm. So it starts as a young age. And what I like to do is I rule out other causes of diarrhea. Like, for instance, I want to make sure there's no evidence of something like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. I want to make sure there's no celiac. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, what I do with somebody that has IBS, I can tell at the beginning, but I can't make the diagnosis without doing diagnostic testing because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Nor can I tell the patient that they're stressed out because I just met the patient. I want them to gain my confidence so they're going to listen to what I'm saying. So what I will do is do some routine blood tests. I may do a stool examination. I may do a check for celiac. And then I may do a colonoscopy, do some biopsies, make sure there's not Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So now we rule out everything. They have IBS. So then we go down to food allergies. I, I want to know what food you eat. 
Hmm. Uh, is something bothering you? I may get food allergy testing. And supposing everything is negative now and they're still having the diarrhea, then I like to go to something called a FODMAP diet, and that is an acronym for carbohydrates. And I'm not going to bore you what, what it means, but I'll just say it. I'll put it out there. Fermentable oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. Hmm. Those are different types of carbohydrates. And we'll do an elimination diet. I'll take the fermentables for one week, and I'll remove that from the diet, see how the patient does. Hmm. Then I'll put it back, and I'll remove the next category. So that's most of the time people have symptoms. It's carbohydrate-related. There's an entity called small intestinal bacterial uh, overgrowth. The, the acronym is SIBO. Mm. that's getting a lot of press. That's when there's bacteria in the small intestine that doesn't belong there. Mm. And we can have people drink a sugar substance and they breathe into a machine and we detect hydrogen in the breath. And uh, if that is positive, we can take an antibiotic and knock that out. Mm. Most of the time I can help patients, but uh, it does recur. It does recur. Constipation is different. Usually I'll do the same uh, algorithm on those patients, make sure there's nothing obstructing, Patients go to the Internet. They're fearful. They think they have something bad. I give them good news. Their symptoms may get better because it's so much psychological. Hmm. But I end up giving them usually psyllium husk, a lot of psyllium husk, and that helps 95% of the time. Carrie, can you stay on for a second? Because I want to ask you. absolutely. I just want to ask you two things. One, just something for you to think about. That brilliant Australian guy who figured out what ulcers come from and that it's bacteria and not just stress. Right. I want to hear you right. tell that story, and I also want to yes. talk about your love and passion for being a Renaissance man and how music enriches your life as a doctor uh, because you play Beautiful. the music. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We're talking to the great Dr. Carrie Strom right here on the Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN. Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook Know Your Knee Post. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL, patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee Dr. Clapper. on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Cool. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better Hello there. with the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. And don't miss Mason in Ireland back Monday at 1 on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Hey, Robbie, do you like donuts? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I love donuts. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. We're listening to the great Dr. Carrie Strom. Turn the beat around. He does it every day as a gastroenterologist here at Cedars. Dr. Strom, teach us one of the great stories in medicine where we made a left turn when we should have made a right turn in the diagnosis of stomach ulcers, which you got to deal with all the time when people have a belly pain. Teach us about the story of that. I forgot his name, the guy, the doctor in Australia who changed the world the world for us okay so 
what you're referring to is in the 70s. Uh, there was a doctor named Marshall from Australia. And uh, what he thought is that there was a bacteria that may be causing stomach ulcers. Now, I want to say in your business, you use anti-inflammatories all the time. That is the second most common cause of, um, of ulcers, mm-hmm. uh, Motrin, Advil, Naproxen. Mm-hmm. But the first most common uh, cause in which you are absolutely correct, and I'm impressed that you know this, is <laughs> H. pylori. Helicobacter pylori is a, bacteria, is a bacteria, and what Marshall did in the 70s, he ingested the bacteria himself. Crazy. And he, well, but he, but he made a revolutionary uh, discovery. Mm-hmm that he decided that this bacteria is the cause of ulcers. So about 70% of ulcers in this country are from bacteria. Wow. Now, where do people get this bacteria? Um, let's just say, even though 70% of the ulcers can be from H. pylori, it's not real common in this country. It's more in countries that are somewhat underdeveloped. Mm. It is uh, transmitted in the household, probably from parents. If parents had it, the kids are going to have it. Hmm. Uh, H. pylori does cause ulcers, and once we go ahead and treat with bacteria, uh, the bacteria with antibiotics, the ulcers go away. Fascinating. And it's also important to get rid of it because H. pylori, according to the American Cancer Association, is a class 1 carcinogen. Hmm. So if somebody does have that, you absolutely must get rid of it because potentially, theoretically, it can cause stomach cancer as well. But, Robbie, that, that's excellent. Yes, H. pylori, it's a, the most common cause of ulcer disease and dis, uh, discovered by an Aussie. Wow. That's right. Before I let you go, teach us about what playing an instrument, being a musician, does for you as a doctor. Is it just that it keeps your head straight, gives you a break from the science, or do you think it makes you a better doctor to have that that right brain, left brain going on at the same time? Well, I, I think any hobby keeps everybody straight as just as a person. Everybody needs an outlet. I've been playing the guitar for many years. I've played in bands in the past. Uh, but recently, uh, I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, I really amped it up a little bit because it was, it was a relaxation for me. And I love playing with my band. I, I have a band uh, made of a bunch of physicians. Originally, <laughs> we all worked at the surgery center on Doheny, so we called ourselves the Docs of Doheny. Um, we we have a little bit of a shtick. We wear scrubs. We've played out at many different events. We played for Cedars events at the Board of Governors at the Regent Wilshire. Recently did a parody about getting the vaccination to the to- to the song of uh, Celebration by Cool and the Gang, which was picked up by NBC. And honestly, this is where I put my medicine. This is where I put my medicine and my music together because of the low vaccination rate. We decided that as doctors, maybe we do this in a funny way. People will listen to us. But it was all about getting the vaccination. Instead of celebration, it was vaccination. Come on. And, and, and you can see that on YouTube. So, but the music, the music for me is just is relaxation. And it's a passion that I've had my whole life. And I'm creative. And uh, I love the medicine. And I love the music. And I said, both of them really complement my life and make my life, it just embellish it and, and make me very happy, both of them together. As I said many times on this show, Cedars is just a building, but the, what makes it so special for me, which is why I've had my whole career there, from Tony Gwynn to Kobe Bryant to playing on just one team, 
I've been at Cedars. It's just a building, but it's the people that make up that building that are the best of the best. And you, Dr. Carrie Strom, make it the best of the best. Thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. I'm glad everybody got to finally meet someone who I think the world of. Oh, thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me on. I love your show. All right, young man. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, I got to ask you, Jared Abrams wants me to ask you, is there anything wrong with eating a chocolate babka for your gut? <laughs> I would say the more babka, the better. Go for it. <laughs> Live your life. That's Live your right. life, man. That's Go right. for it. God bless you. All right, have a good day. All right, Warriors, the lines are lit up. The number is 877-710-ESPN. Clapper Vision, coming up next here on the Weekend Warriors Show on 710 ESPN. Miss an interview or Doc's weekly story? Check it out on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Also, Doc's advice to callers on their aches and pains. Just type Weekend Warrior in the Facebook search bar, and you'll see Doc's picture in the listings. And thanks for checking out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. I got two words for you. Forget about it. Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. How about that Weekend Warrior Show? Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Good times it is. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to the great Mirren Fader. Mirren, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Are you there? Did we lose her? Mirren, you yeah, there? Can you hear me? Yep, now we can hear you. Thanks so much for getting yes, up early to be with us. Thanks for having me. Can I play a, t- a soundbite? And I just would love to hear what, you, what goes through your head when you hear Giannis in his post-championship conference talking about choosing to stay in Milwaukee and not join a super team. Here it is. This is my city. You know, they trust me. They believe in me. They believe in us. Even when we were like, we were last, the city still was like on our side. And, um, you know, obviously I wanted, I wanted to get the job done. You know, uh, they, but that's my stubborn side. Like, it's easy to go somewhere and go and win a championship with somebody else. It's easy. I could go, I don't want to put anybody in the spot, but I could go to a super team and, you know, just do my part and win a championship, still one. But this is the hard way to do it, and this is the way I chose to do it, and we did it. It's his city, Mirren. You, more than anybody else, knows what it's like. Is it true the people in Milwaukee used to pick him up and give him a ride to the arena? Yeah, there was one woman that I detailed in the book that did that. But yeah, there's, you know, I talked to so many Milwaukee fans for the book and everyone has a Giannis story. Oh, he talked to me for 30 minutes in Walmart. Oh, he came to my, you know, recital and told me about this and that. Like he has personal connections to random strangers in this city. And I think it's because he felt gratitude that this city stuck by him you know he's not a a modern day prospect that's like wow you guys are lucky to have me he's like oh man you got i'm lucky that you drafted me and i'm gonna prove to you that i'm worthy so he's never forgotten that well we're lucky to be able to talk to you Mirren. so tell us a little bit about you where did you grow up what did your mom and dad do for a living and how does a great 
girl decides she's going to be in the sports business, and I can only imagine what that is like. Tell us your journey. Yeah, you know, I started, so I'm from Los Angeles, and I was in elementary school, and I was in fifth grade, and I saw all these boys, um, like, rushing towards the basketball court, and I was like, where are they going? You know, why are all these guys (laughs) going to this rectangular, you know, because I didn't know it's called a basketball court. It looked like a giant rectangle, and I was like, oh, I wonder what's going on, and so I went with them, and and I picked up a ball, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. And um, I played for like hours and then I actually started writing that day as well. I went back and wrote in a diary and was like, I just tried this thing called basketball. It's so awesome. So that led me on. Yeah, that led me on like a decade long journey. I did not even want to be a writer. I wanted to be a basketball player. I wanted to be in the WNBA. And yeah, I just worked for like a decade. I ended up playing one year at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. And um, this whole time I've been writing. And I think, you know, once basketball uh, ended for me, I was like, okay, how do I stay within basketball? I love this sport so much. And I was like, well, I've been writing my whole life. Like maybe I should write. And so, yeah, it was, it seemed natural. Where did you go to high school? What did your mom and dad do for a living? Oh, yeah, sorry. I went to LACES. I don't know if you've heard of it, Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies. Mm. Um, and my parents, yeah, my, it's on Fairfax and 18th. And um, my parents are now retired, but my mom was a professor and my dad is an um, architect. And it was never like, oh, my God, why do you want to be in the WNBA or why do you want to be a sports writer, which are both equally <laughs> tough. WNBA, I'm five feet tall, so that was an uphill battle. Sports writing, I'm like the only woman. So, you know, luckily I just kind of kept pushing, even though I I guess I didn't quite fit the mold. (laughs) Well, you don't. I went to Far Rockaway High School, graduated in 1975, so I'm a million years old. But do you know who was in my (laughs) high school when I was there? Who? Nancy Lieberman. Wow. That's right. Oh my Nancy, gosh. And I have still my high school yearbook with a big picture of her on the basketball team. And as a school, we I remember vividly with the hat going around the class where we all put in whatever change we had to get money together to send Nancy Lieberman to the Pan Am games because she couldn't afford the plane ticket or whatever. But the whole school sent Nancy Lieberman because that girl could kick anyone's butt on the basketball court man or woman she was amazing as a high school player and look at what became of nancy lieberman so as they say you go girl oh good for you Mira, and i love it good for you where'd you go well, to college i so i started at lewis and clark college and then transferred to occidental college out here ah. and i graduated from occidental yeah so i think pretty local did um, you eat did you eat uh the sausage pizza at casa bianca uh on colorado boulevard oh, not that one but i love that place and i'm really <laughs> happy that they're still in business they are. the pandemic yeah i don't want to say their name too much because i don't want they're crowded enough i don't want to give that away but that's a, I live in Encino. I get in my car and I drive to oh Occidental just to eat the pizza there. Thank you very much. That's, that's love. That that's love. love. So what I find, first of all, so we everybody knows, tell us again the name of the book that you wrote about Giannis before he became a champion. Yeah, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. It's just, just an unbelievable, most lovable superstar. So... This show, because I'm a sculptor, I'm a surgeon, I love art, I love sports, and I love surgery, 
is trying to find those dots to connect. So for me, hearing that press count, knowing that Giannis is staying in that small town, being so beloved, it it really t- teaches us about loyalty to your team, to your band, to your hospital, whatever it is. He's all about being loyal. So who in the music business is loyal? Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger did not leave the Rolling Stones. And what's fascinating to me is in that same press conference when Giannis credits Chris Middleton for pushing him. I'm going to play the soundbite. I want to hear what you have to say. And then I'm going to play the one from Mick Jagger. Listen to this and I want to hear what you think. What goes through your mind when you hear him talk about his teammate? He doesn't realize how much he pushed me to be great. He pushes me to be great. You know, I had a lot of people throughout my career that pushed me to be great and be consistent and be just be dominant, just keep coming, keep working hard. And he's one of those guys, you know. And uh, there was nobody in this world that I would rather do this journey with than that guy. You know, uh, he's been here since the beginning. You know, he's been here since the day we were fighting for uh, some minutes. And he was yelling to me when we were, <clears throat> I was 18. He was yelling to me to like basketball and all that. We were just fighting on the court, you know, when we were kids. And now we, in this stage, doing it together. What do you think? What goes through your, now that you know him so well with all the people that you interviewed, the research, the time you put in to write this book, how beautiful that he deflects the credit to Chris Middleton. Yeah, you know, that's classic Giannis. He, he's different from every other modern-day superstar in the fact that he's not, like, one of those guys that, like, it's all about me. In fact, he is almost uncomfortable in the spotlight. Hmm. And it's interesting that he is so deferential to, to Middleton in the best way possible um, in ways that are so commendable. It's because, you know, when they were, um, they were on the Bucks together in those early years, Middleton was the better player and Giannis wanted to be the team leader and they had moments where, you know, it was really competitive between them, but they learned to really love each other and realize that they need each other. And I think that that shows the growth of Giannis's leadership in the sense of being a leader doesn't always mean that you have to take the shot. It doesn't always Mm. mean that you get all the credit and all the adulation. Being a leader means complimenting others, uplifting others, putting other people in positions to succeed. And you will not find a bigger advocate for Chris Middleton than Giannis. And I Mm. think that just shows tremendous leadership growth in him. Like I would want to play with Giannis, you know, when Mm. I, when I've been hearing about all this, like who's going to what team, I don't know why there aren't like 10 guys rushing to come to Milwaukee right now. (laughs) Mm. He just sounds like the best person to play with. Exactly right. I love, I mean, what's great about your knowledge of Giannis is you can speak better than anybody about that transition. And I use on the show the example in my lifetime beforehand was, because I'm so much older, the greatest football team that I got to see was the 1972 Miami Dolphins, which went undefeated and won the Super Bowl. Their kicker, the reason they won, came not from Greece, but from Cyprus. He played soccer, Garo Upremium. He didn't know one end of a football from another. And I just want you to listen to his description of what it was like to make the transition to America and to football. And I need you to then listen to this and tell us what it was like for Giannis as a culture shock. This is Garo Upremium. Thursday night, I signed a contract with the Detroit Lions 
when they found out that I didn't have a working permit. I said to my brother, what is a working permit? He said, first of all, you came from another country, you need a green card, and second of all, you've got to have a social security card to work in the States. I said, well, let's go and get one of each of those things right away. Oh, he said, it takes usually about a year to get that. He said, I'll talk to the management of the Detroit Lions and see what they can do. We went to the Detroit Lions, talked to Mr. William Clay Ford. He said, don't worry, we'll take care of this. The next morning, they put me in a limousine with two attorneys, took me to the immigration office, social security office, police station. By 8 o'clock, same day, my papers were all in order. What a country. <laughs> Tell us what it was like. Did he play basketball in as a kid? I don't think he did. He played soccer. What was Giannis's transition like to basketball? Yeah, it was not something that was on his mind. His dad played professional soccer um, in Nigeria, and so Giannis wanted to be just like his dad, Charles, and play soccer. And it wasn't until this random Greek man, Spiros Velinatis, came up to him and said, hey, I think, you know, you should play basketball. You should play for my team. Did he ever think about basketball? But, you know, Giannis didn't even really play, like, every day as something he was dedicated to until he was about 16 years old because those early years he had to leave basketball practice and go with his parents to sell items at faraway beaches, upscale places. So, Mm. you know, it's not this romantic story. Oh, I love basketball from the moment I saw it. Mm -hmm. You know, for him, it, it took time, and he ended up loving it. And But he had so many other things to worry about. Number one, he and his entire family were undocumented. So um, he did not have papers. And so it was hard to get scouted for basketball because he couldn't leave the country. Hmm. And the only reason why he was able to come to America and play basketball is because the Greek government expedited his citizenship at the last minute and gave him papers. Hmm. But they didn't give it to his mom. They didn't give it to his dad. They didn't give it to the rest of them. So um, it just really goes to show you that, you know, although basketball was becoming a big part of his life, he had so many other things to worry about. His dad died? Yes, yes. At um, what at age and of what? Yeah, 54 of a heart attack. It was a couple years back now. Mm. Um, this is absolutely devastating, mm. for be honest, because he thought, okay, well, I overcame this difficult childhood. I overcame everything that there was, I thought. You know, I thought once we got through that and came to America, life would be good. And so it was almost even more cruel for that to have happened. Miriam, can you stay on for just another segment? I just want to pay some bills. I just want to ask you about his mom. And nobody knows her better than you. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. We're talking to the great Miriam Fader, who wrote an unbelievable book about Giannis Antetokounmpo. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on 710 ESPN. Holy emoji, Clapman. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's clapper vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like... Follow and enjoy a wise decision. The Weekend Wear Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. 
Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Maganda Umaga. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Cells are just tiny people. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> uh, welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Only Steve Paulette would come up with Zorba the Greek while we're talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo with his biographer, Mirren Fader. Mirren, I want to play a soundbite once again about Keith Richards and Rolling Stone's Mick Jagger about their mom. Listen to this. When we first moved in there, though, at both Keith and our mums used to do our washing for us. And they used to yeah, drink. And both Keith and our mums would, would somehow get us. I can't remember how we got it, but they would deliver somehow yeah, clean clothes. British Railway. Is it true Gianna sent his entire paycheck every time he got it back home to give to his mom? Pretty much most of it. I mean, you know, everything he did was for her. He even didn't spend his per diem every day. They gave you separate money for meals and stuff, and he just kept them in a suitcase of all these envelopes just waiting for her to come. And it was for the dad, too. But, you know, Veronica, his mom, is a very special person. She was very conscious of wanting her kids to grow up knowing that they had a happy childhood and happy memories, even though things were really hard. And so she forced herself to smile and to sacrifice. And even if she'd be out there for 14 hours, she would make sure to come home with a smile and wash the one pair of socks that Giannis had. So they'd be clean for basketball practice tomorrow. It's little things like that, that she did for him that he'll never forget. And it's funny because, um, Jared Dudley used to be on the Bucks, and when Giannis was about 21 years old, Jared and him were on a bus ride to a game, and Jared's like, you got to move out of your mom's house because Giannis was sharing a, a home in America that year with his mom, and um, Giannis was like, no, never, you know, and so it's, <laughs> it's a different level of, of closeness than, than us Americans are used to. Wow. What's your favorite part about the book that you wrote that the discovery that you made my favorite anecdote happened rookie year when he was having a tough transition to suddenly becoming a millionaire and um he didn't trust anyone because he grew up undocumented he never know who could deport his parents so one day rookie year in milwaukee he had to get his cable installed and he didn't trust the cable worker so he asked a buck staffer to be there so the the guy comes from the Bucks, and it takes a long time. It's from 9 to 4 uh, p.m. And the staffer gets hungry. He eats a couple Oreos in Giannis's pantry, doesn't think anything of it. Giannis sees him at practice the next day, and he's like, hey, did you eat my Oreos? Yeah. And the staffer's like, <laughs> the staffer's like uh, <laughs> what? And Giannis's like, well, I noticed three were missing. Uh. And the staffer, the staffer's just done, right? Like, who does that? But then it makes sense. It's like, of course Giannis counts his Oreos. You know, he grows up having to know acutely how much he has and how much he does not have. And he's he was still that, that child inside that was without. And so you know, it was just, it gave me so much perspective into what this guy has gone through. You know, it's not this easy thing like, oh yeah, now I make a million dollars. It's so great. Life is beautiful. It's like, it can, it's not easy when you come from what he came from. 
It sometimes takes someone from Nigeria who grew up in Greece to teach us how beautiful it is to be in America. You know, sometimes we just take it for granted and we need someone like Giannis to remind us how beautiful the American life really is. Uh, what, what culturally is different about Greece than America? You know, I found it really interesting that Giannis's childhood coaches told me that when he was disappointed in his game, he would openly cry, like on the bench, all of that, you know, after mm-hmm. the game, before the game, whatever. And it was not seen as weird. And then when he did that his rookie year in, in America and he starts crying, his coaches are like, stop crying. You know, like you can't show that publicly. So I think like, you know, I don't know. All I know is from Giannis' experience, but it appears that boys and men are socialized differently over there. You know, they're not told to hold in their emotions like we are over here. Um, so I, I just found that to be interesting. But um, I know for sure there are humble American players. You know, it's not like, oh, overseas guys are humble, American guys arrogant. I think you could find both in each country. But I do think overall the way that international players are groomed and taught is a much more global, well-rounded, humble approach. It's not I deserve, it's I earn. Mm. Um, and I, I really respect that. One of the nice things about him and his story is what a big to-do he made for his brother who's on the Lakers, who got a ring before he did, and how he mm-hmm. really sticks up for his brothers. Another brother, I think, just got signed by uh, Milwaukee to play. But tell us a little bit about the the beautiful relationship. Him and his mom is special, but amongst him and his brothers. Yeah, you know, the youngest brother, Alex, was telling me that the relationship is so unique because it came from a situation where nobody got any special treatment. So Alex, he said, we never fought and we don't fight to this day because we shared everything. Nothing was individual to anyone. So this, they, they just were always used to sharing and they were each other's heroes and best friends. And even though things were hard, they made things happy. They made a game out of walking to the bus stop. They had to take like three buses to get to the gym in mm. Greece all those days. So now that they're all adults and they're living this dream that none of them thought possible, Kostas, the one that was previously on the Lakers that you mentioned, he told me, it's crazy. It's a dream. Ten years ago, we didn't even play basketball. Hmm. So I think like there, there is a gratitude among them for being in the moment. It never gets old. They never take it for granted. And they're genuinely happy for each other's success. You know, the Nassus, the Buck, the guy that just resigned on the Bucks, he's the oldest. And he watched baby brother's dreams bloom before his. And he was never jealous. He was never like, I should be here before you. He was Giannis's biggest cheerleader. The first time Giannis got um, named an all-star starter, Thanasis uh, was playing in Spain, and Thanasis woke up at the crack of dawn to make sure he was the first call to Giannis to say congratulations. So, um, you know, it's, it's Giannis's biggest goal this entire time has not just been to win a championship for Milwaukee. It's to have all of his brothers in the NBA achieving this dream. And Alex, the youngest one, has been working out for some summer league teams. So maybe we'll see that happen. Mm. Mirren Fader, listen, I've written three books with Linda Yui. Heal your hips, heal your knees. But I, So I know what it's like. I know the work that gets put in to write a book and how difficult it is and how rewarding it is when it first comes out. 
Let me tell you something, young lady. You now have an orthopedic surgeon in your back pocket. God forbid you ever need somebody. You get hurt. There we go. It'll be my pleasure to help you because bringing to light this story, you were the, you're the right person because it is all about a female touch because he ain't Giannis unless he has his mom. And nobody better can understand that than you. You realize where this nurturing comes from. And I heard you being interviewed by the Cam brothers and sitting on the couch and making eye contact with the mom. It's a beautiful story that I'm not so sure, you know, I'm probably politically incorrect to say that, but I don't think a man gets to Giannis and and the beauty behind it, like your sensibilities, plus the fact that you played basketball. Mm. What a perfect person to describe and take us through his life. God bless you for doing it. I can't wait to read the book. And thanks so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. Um, your kind words. I, I'm really touched. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, Miran. We're all going to look out for that book. What a pleasure to meet you on the radio and to share your love of Giannis and your love of writing and your love of basketball It's more than just one topic that you're going to appreciate when you read this book. Thanks again for joining us. All right, Warriors, the clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Get smart. Just what are you getting at? Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Like this. Medical advice from Cedar Sinai, head of orthopedic surgery. Are you kidding? With a far rockaway attitude and a little drizzle of mozzarella. Well, it's important to me. Search Weekend Warrior in the space bar. Like this. And click on Doc's picture. I see. Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. I want to be called Dr. Rocky Clapper. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with (laughs) Dr. Clapper. That's all you need to enter my world is a chocolate babka. Every Saturday morning from (laughs) 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Thank you, Kobe. Thank you, Steve Paulette. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to our next guest, the great, iconic football player. The great Dick Butchins. Dick, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Listen, I hope you don't mind me comparing you to Michelangelo, the marble sculptor, and the way he hit the stone. One of my favorites. Okay. Because I appreciate yeah. in you, in your career, yes, you were big. Yes, you were strong. But there's more than that. It just It's clear when you went to hit somebody... The aggression we all, I get, but it's the fact that you made a science out of hitting in the right spot. There's an equipment manager from University of Illinois who talked about how you used to study film for people's tendencies. Tell us about the work ethic and the and the work you put in of the science of hitting. Well, you know, from each level, from high school, then to college, you know, the you know, the opposition gets a little bit better each step. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the pros, it's, uh, it's another step up. But mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of guys have problems, uh, hiding what they do best. You know, their, mm. their go-to, uh, move as a pass rusher or whatever. 
So by studying films long enough, you'll be able to see all these different traits that over the course of a couple, three or four games that you're watching. And then I just adapted to that. Wow. That's all. It was just, uh, I was a fullback in high school. And what really bothered me was when someone hit me like right in the chest, you know, and wrapped <laughs> my arms up. And then as I was falling, I don't know which arm to put out there to break my fall. And lo and behold, sometimes it was the arm with the ball in it and caused me to fumble. So, so I just I just started doing that in high school, and it worked. I started doing it in college, thinking it wouldn't work now because all the people are better. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And finally in the pros, it worked also. So you learned, by being a fullback, you learned the weaknesses, the tendencies of what a fullback, and you didn't like to get hit there. So when you became on the defensive side, you basically did what you hated the most when you were a fullback. Exactly. Oh, my God, that's genius. I don't think I was the Lone Ranger in that respect. I think a lot of guys did not like to get their arms wrapped up with nothing to break their fall. Now, Dick, your dad was an electrician, right? Yeah. My dad was a carpenter. I became an orthopedic surgeon. You became a football player. What did you learn from your dad? Take us in terms of, I mean, there were like nine kids in the family, right? You were the youngest of nine kids. Tell me about your dad. What did you learn work ethic-wise? What did you learn from him? He came from Lithuania, and he was working uh, at Pullman Standard. He was putting putting electric in railroad cars, and Hmm. then he would have a lot of side jobs afterwards, at night and whatever, and of course I was too young to go with them all. All my brothers, you know, would take turns going with them and helping them on side jobs. Hmm. And my mother, I remember, used to get so upset because he'd be home maybe on an off night that he didn't have a job, and he goes out, and you know, my mother would say, "Well, you know, scream at him, where are you going?" And and he says, "You know." That guy's refrigerator I tried to fix the other day, it's on the blink again. I got to go back and I want to fix it, make it right. Oh, wow. And I listened to that. Hmm. And it was more than one time. And so I got the I got the point of, you know, when you start something, finish it. And no matter what happens as far as time or money, just do the job, you know. Wow. Give the people the service and, and, and back it up. Wow. I think that was one of the key things I learned from them. That's unbelievable. My yeah. dad taught me to measure twice, cut once. It comes in very handy, Dick, as an orthopedic surgeon. There you go. <laughs> Speaking there of orthopedic go. surgery, tell us about, take us back in time. And I don't want to get into the fact that this doctor really did not do the right thing by you. But I want, I'm fascinated by, I talked to Rick Barry about his knee injury, about the right. way we were in the dark ages we didn't have MRIs. We barely had an X-ray right. and knew what to do with it in those days. Nowadays, every kind of bump and bruise, we get an MRI and we get hysterical that someone's been injured. But when you played, what was the trainer like? What was the doctor like? What was the treatment like? Because the brutal injuries well, were there. The Take doctor, us back. The doctor or team doctor back in those days, you could not go and you know, go to Birmingham and see Dr. Andrews about your knee. You had to go to the team doctor. Otherwise, you would violate your contract if you went somewhere else. Because hmm. they thought he was the best. Hmm. And he used to, you know, he really injected a lot of people uh, with uh, hydrocortisone. Mm-hmm. And I never got it before a game, but I would get it like three times a week for over seven years. Jeez. So I, I think that had a little 
a little something to do with my, my knee deteriorating. And then so he goes in and operates on it. And I become allergic to cat gut that he used uh, for the sutures. Wow. And so, you know, back then you used the full leg cast. Mm. So I would put, you put the cast on, I would go home, and like two days later, I thought my leg was going to explode. Wow. And it really hurt around the groin area, which is where the lymph nodes were. Mm. So I would go back every week for about four weeks. Mm. And he would open that cast up. Finally, the last time after doing this for four weeks, hmm. the stench was so bad hmm. in in my leg, the skin was like rotting oh, from, the, from all this crap oozing out. Jeez. And my friend who drove me there, he threw up and nearly passed out with the smell. Wow. And what does he do? He just dabs a little bit and he takes a pair of scissors and cuts the hole bigger and pulls out a suture. <laughs> And I'm like, what the heck? And so we went through the whole operation again, and it was never right. So I, I never really practiced. I never practiced the last three years because we had moved from Ridley Field, which was a grass field, and we moved to Soldier Field, and they had AstroTurf. And it was in 1971. You know, it was it was it was not very good. So I really had problems practicing on it and everything else. So. I hardly ever practiced just played the game and then get my treatments, my shots during the week. I can just tell you as an orthopedic surgeon, when you read the history of, of what we did, they didn't know any better. But the great Jim yeah, Nicholas, yeah. who operated on Joe Namath's knee, I mean, this is the same mentality way back in the 60s. He described an operation called a 5 and one which meant you looked at your meniscus like it was your appendix. Even in 2015, right away they want to take your appendix out. What we're going to end up learning, I think, in 30 years is the appendix is probably a very important part of your GI tract. You need everything. You need to do everything you can to preserve it. But he described if you tore your meniscus, you should take out four other things at the same time. It was unbelievable how they looked at things. Yeah. Then. And now we do everything we can to do the opposite to really preserve it. Incredible. Well, thank you for right. that insight. I want to ask you a little bit about Gail Sayers. Gail Sayers, who you played with. But like you, has a God-given talent, but yet incredible work ethic on top of it. Let's, I want you to just listen to Gail Sayers. He's a God-given talent. You know, no doubt about it. I had great peripheral vision. There's no doubt about that. I could see everybody on the field. And so I knew where, where to run, where to cut. In the same way, I, could, I had a, a, a feel for where people were. Because I know many times, many runs, and I wanted the films. There'd be a fellow coming from a blind side, and uh, no way I could see him, but I could feel him. Tell us, tell us, Dick Butkus, what's it like to have a sixth sense about people around you? He's, he, he had that. He, he really did. And, and the thing of it was... I, I noticed in practicing against him, he would like run off tackle, and you, I'd have an angle on him, and uh, he'd like stop on a dime, and he'll go, he goes the other way just as fast. I mean, it's unbelievable. I used to love watching him, and I always wanted to be on the punt return team and the kickoff return team, you know, to help block for him because I just loved watching him go. It's amazing when you know, another guy and and he had and he had you know his knee blown out. And Dr. Fox operated on him, and he came back and led the league in rushing. Yeah. And then he got it hurt again, and then that was it. Mm. So he had three operations, and the third one uh, put him out of football. 
Yeah. So basically, so, it's the you know they talk about performance enhancing drugs. How about yes. surgery? Performance enhancing surgery. Sandy Koufax couldn't have Tommy John surgery. Look at what happens to players now after the Tommy John. Look at Adrian Peterson. A year after his yeah. ACL, he almost breaks Eric Dickerson's record. It's amazing the advancement we've had in orthopedic surgery to allow the things that you and Gail Sayers had to deal with to not happen anymore. No, no, you know, the, and the nutrition is so much better, and mm-hmm. the strength training is better, and, and of course the medical stuff yeah. is a lot better. Wow! So it's great that you you are giving back so much to the world of football and all the lessons. It's almost like you got beat up, but now you're kind of taking all of that and making the world a better place by what you went through. And I think that's the best way to deal with it, Dick. It's really fantastic. We're going to be talking to Dr. Santoro uh, at 8 o'clock. So I can't wait to talk to him about how he's helped you as well. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's good a man. good guy. And you play golf with him. Well, you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that's I mean, where what, the word handicap came from. <laughs> I mean, what what is the deal where, you know, if – if my marker is like in his line, he just moves his ball. <laughs> it's called it's a, a mulligan. You know, by a tree or something, he just picks it out a little bit. What the heck is that all about? Oh, my God. So do you do that on your surgeries? No. You, you, you don't get that chance, Dick Butkus, that's for sure. All right. So, anyway, I want to thank you so much okay. for joining us today, uh, taking time out of a Saturday. We really appreciate it. And really... In so many ways, we learn from someone like you. It's not the brute strength. It's like your dad taught you. You're going to do a job, you finish it, you do it right. It's the precision with which you hit. Same thing in art, same thing in surgery. But it's people like you that we get to see and appreciate their career. You did it with such dignity and class, Dick Butkus. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. You got it. Okay, buddy. Thank you. All right, coming up next, Warriors, I'm going to take your calls. The number is 877-710-ESPN. Incredible to talk to an icon, the great Dick Butkus. What a joy this is. What a great opportunity. What a great show this is. Having so much fun. Talk to you in a bit. Pay some bills.